This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Linda Mottram. Tonight, Labor rejects a government estimate that the opposition's energy policy would cost consumers more. While in Ukraine, the battle of the Donbass has begun, while efforts to build a solid legal case against Russia for its crimes continue. My guest is former war crimes prosecutor Shahram Dana. Justice delayed, you know, of course, for the victims is is terrible. It's justice denied. But but the arc of justice is there, and eventually it will catch up to the perpetrators, including Putin. And volunteers work around the clock to help the refugees released from Melbourne's Park Hotel with limited support from the government. Liaising with charities to try and find housing and helping them adjust to being free, taking people to the doctor, taking people to dentists, trying to find funding because there's no money. Well, welcome to the program. The Federal Coalition is trying to advance its claims against Labor on cost of living issues. It's homed in today on energy costs, claiming it has modelling, showing a Labor government would push up power prices. But it's failed to release that modelling, and experts are sceptical. On the campaign trail today, industrial relations also reared its head, while internal Liberal Party pressure over the Prime Minister's hand-picked candidate in the seat of Warringah keeps erupting. Isabel Rowe reports. Splashed across the newspaper front pages, today's headlines like Bill Shock War and Labor's price surge carry the Energy Minister's claim that power bills would rise under a Labor government. Labor has said they're going to spend an extra $78 billion on transmission um, and they've got to explain who's going to pay for that. We know who pays for it. Minister Angus Taylor's office says its own modelling shows a customer's annual bill would go up by $560 over the next decade. But pressed on how he reached that figure, Angus Taylor wouldn't elaborate. Well, the modelling is Labor's. It's their $78 billion. Well, it's not been publicly released. Do we just take well, that $78 billion is Labor's number. PM has asked for a copy of the Minister's modelling, but there was no response. Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers has rubbished the government's claims. The numbers he cooked up and put in the papers are complete and utter rubbish. Angus Taylor has added fuel to the bin fire of lies that this government tells about renewable energy. Energy Program Director at the Australia Institute, Richie Merzian, says whoever wins government will have to pay for poles and wires to upgrade the electricity grid to handle renewables. It's possible power prices might go up in the short term from investing in a fit-for-purpose grid, but the long-term benefits of doing that is a more stable grid They can access more renewables, which we know will bring down power prices. The Prime Minister took his re-election pitch to Western Australia over the weekend. Today, he's told the state's mining industry he'd bring back policy to extend Greenfields agreements, the pay and conditions agreements made between unions and project developers before workers start the job. And it's long been recognised that this can be a barrier to investment decisions on major projects that take longer than four years to construct. So if re-elected, the Coalition will introduce legislation to extend the maximum term of Greenfields agreements from four years to six years. Scott Morrison says the agreements would build in annual pay rises for workers. But Labor's Tony Burke says it's not much. 
What he's referring to today, where he's talking about the annual wage review, is actually a lower rate of increase than, is what hap- than what's happening under current Greenfields agreements. The announcement is likely to please resource industry employers who want cost certainty on their projects. But the Morrison government has previously failed to convince enough crossbenchers in Parliament to vote for the policy. And University of Sydney industrial relations law expert Professor Shane McChrystal says a hung parliament could present the same problem. It's very hard to speculate, but they have the same issues with the proposal that existed last time. They need to convince a crossbench that the economic factors for the construction companies involved in this outweigh the impact on workers who are unable to have a say over their working conditions. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister says he won't silence his candidate in the Sydney seat of Warringah, Catherine Deaves, over her controversial remarks about transgender women in sport. The Liberal candidate has been forced to issue several apologies for transphobic remarks she's made, but says she's now being bullied by her opponents. Her critics within the Liberal Party, such as the New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane, are continuing to pressure the Prime Minister to disendorse her. But Mr Morrison calls it a pylon and says he won't be joining in. In selecting Catherine, um, who is a woman raising three girls, who's always stood up for women and girls in sport, and I'm not going to allow a pylon on her to silence her. And I think there are many Australians who agree with me about that. One election message that does appear to have cut through is from the Australian Electoral Commission. More than 214,000 people enrolled to vote before the deadline yesterday, the biggest enrolment day in history. It means more than 96% of eligible voters are now enrolled. Isabel Rowe with that report. Well, both major parties are now accusing each other of running scare campaigns based on misleading information. Over the weekend, social media posts were seen from the official Liberal Party account warning voters against Labor's retiree tax, a reference to a franking credits policy that was ditched years ago. And multiple Labor candidates are telling their online followers that the Coalition wants to put more pensioners on a cashless welfare card, which the Coalition says is undeniably misinformation. Oliver Gordon's been taking a look. Multiple Labor MPs have been going on Facebook telling their followers that the Coalition government wants to put pensioners onto a cashless welfare card. Prime Minister Scott Morrison says it's a lie. The Labor Party is ringing up people, sending out brochures writing to pensioners and scaring them that there'd be some suggestion that our government would be applying the debit card to pensioners. It's just simply not true. Labor has been campaigning on the cashless debit card since last year. It's a system being trialled in certain areas where welfare payments are linked to a debit card and can't be spent on things like alcohol and gambling or withdrawn as cash. Labor's launched a website claiming the Liberal National Government wants to expand the cashless debit card to include all pensioners. And six Labor MPs have posted to their online communities suggesting something similar. The basis for the claims stem from comments Senator Anne Rustin made more than two years ago, indicating there is a case for the card to be used more broadly. Now she's telling reporters there's no truth to Labor's claims. That is not true. They know it's not true. But Shadow Treasurer Jim Chalmers says Labor will not back away from the claim. Absolutely not. Now, this is a key issue. 
There are other doubtful claims being made by the major parties during this campaign. At the last election, Labor promised to end cash refunds for excess franking credits. The coalition called it the retiree tax, as many older Australians are shareholders. Despite Labor ditching the policy in 2020, the Liberal Party is resurrecting the claim. The Liberal Party's Facebook account has been advertising to older people with calls to sign a petition. The ABC contacted the Liberal Party's campaign HQ to ask what they were referring to by Labor's retiree tax, but did not receive a response. Clive Palmer's United Australia Party is spending a hell of a lot on online ads. Its videos on YouTube make outlandish claims like this. That will enter a stage where we have government uh, by remote control, where our bank accounts are pillaged, where our identity is known, there'll be a social credit system like what there is in China. These things are very... So why do political parties engage in political advertising that pushes the boundaries of truth? ANU political advertising expert Dr Andrew Hughes says it doesn't take long for a message to stick. Um, about two seconds on average um, and that's it. And it goes into your short-term memory and then it can go into your medium and long-term memory with a longer exposure or repeated exposure to the same information. So that's, that's really quick if you think about it. He says political parties are willing to take the risk of being called out for the potential payoff. Even if the ad's taken down or perhaps later on there's a fact check done um, and it comes out that that information's incorrect, for most people it's too late. They've already um, seen the information, the information's already gone into their memory and it's very hard now to fudge that information out of the memory bank. So this is why it's worth the payoff because often it's effective to do these campaigns. He says any calls for greater truth in political advertising federally should look to recent elections in South Australia for guidance. What we saw there, they're retrospective. They apply after the ad's been out in public and been seen by people. So Labor in South Australia won the election, but they had two ads pulled in the final week of the campaign. Um, But they were already been seen by people. So they only pulled after they'd been out in the public domain, not before. And that means that the the desired effect was there and probably helped Labor get across the line that election. Dr Andrew Hughes is an expert on political advertising. He's at the Australian National University, speaking with Oliver Gordon. You're listening to PM on the radio, on the ABC Listen app and via podcast. I'm Linda Mottram on Twitter. I'm at Linda Mottram. Ahead, notorious right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones files for bankruptcy in the US. Will his voice be silenced? Along a 480-kilometre front and with an estimated 50,000 troops, Russia has begun its long-anticipated assault on the east of Ukraine, the country's president says. The offensive is seen as a pivot for Russia after its failure to seize the capital, Kiev. Analysts say Moscow could seek to broaden the territory Russian-backed separatists already hold in the east and push south to link up with Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014, though some are also warning that the Russian leader Vladimir Putin will not stop until he controls all of Ukraine. We begin with this report from Rachel Mealy. For Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, it was only a matter of time. A very large part of the Russian army is now concentrated on this offensive. No matter how many of the Russian troops are there, we will fight, we will defend ourselves, and we will do everything that we must to keep what's Ukrainian. As the sounds of defence artillery could be heard in the distance, a hospice in Ukraine's Donetsk region was evacuated. 
Sick and elderly men and women, some in wheelchairs, had to flee the region as Russian forces moved in. Yevgeny Charkov is the head of the hospice. He was working with the United Nations to organise the emergency evacuation. The main difficulty is that people with problems that can't move had to be evacuated, he says. Very ill people who are living their final days or weeks or months. That's why it was so difficult. The Donbass is in Ukraine's east. The area is populated by Russian speakers and Russian separatists have declared two independent republics there. In the past few weeks, Russia has been reinforcing ground troops in the region in preparation for this battle. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says the US has seen Russia add artillery, ground combat forces and other capabilities in recent days. I mean, we have seen the Russians continue to flow in enablers, capabilities that will help them fight in the Donbass going forward. That's artillery, rotary, aviation, helicopter support, uh, command and control enablers. And we do believe that they have reinforced the number of battalion tactical groups in the east and the south of Ukraine. He says the U.S. is sending howitzer weapons to aid in the fight and will teach Ukrainian forces how to use them. It'll be more of a train-the-trainers kind of environment, so it'll be a small number of Ukrainians that will be trained on the howitzers and then they'll be reintroduced back into their country to train their colleagues. Jacinta Carroll is a defence and security analyst. She says the renewed focus on the east isn't necessarily a sign that Vladimir Putin has changed his plans for Ukraine. It doesn't appear that the strategic intention and objectives of the Russian government have changed at all. They've just had to revise what they're doing and how they'll go about it because of the effective uh, resistance, defence and counterattack by the Ukrainians. She says there's been nothing from the Kremlin which would indicate that the mission has changed. We're hearing uh, some very interesting, an interesting array of rhetoric coming out from the Kremlin. And some of it is describing this as a war between Russia and NATO, a war between Russia and the US, and making claims and threats uh, around Poland and the Baltic states. So whether this is sabre-rattling or uh, it's a justification of further attempts at offensives and expansion it remains to be seen. Jacinta Carroll says it's shaping now like a war of attrition and Ukraine can outlast Russia if it continues to employ good tactics. There's a complex mix of things that are required for military sustainment in battle. And as long as they can keep those going, they should be reasonably in a reasonably good state because what we've seen so far is that they've got a good plan. They show patience and judgment in the way they've been engaging with the Russian military. Defence and security analyst Jacinda Carroll, Rachel Mealy with our report. Despite the ever-growing weight of evidence reported by international media and by global institutions investigating war crimes in Ukraine, Russia continues to deny allegations that it is targeting civilians there. This was Russia's Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations, Dmitry Polyansky, speaking on RN Breakfast today. You know, there are a lot of situations, uh, and we come across uh, more and more of them uh, in the course of the military operation, when the uh, formations of territorial defense and uh, NASI battalions are using civilian infrastructure as a shelter for placing heavy artillery and rocket systems in the civilian areas. And of course, this causes 
certain destruction when the fire comes back, but we do not target civilians. Well, Dr. Shahram Dana is a senior lecturer in law at Griffith University and a former war crimes prosecutor. I asked for his assessment of the Russian claims. I think his comments come from the perspective of attempting to deflect and defend Russia's actions. Certainly, Russia's claim has been that we're in the right because we are moving into these towns to liberate them from the oppression of Ukraine. We're, we're liberating these people who welcome Russians. The idea that you are indiscriminately killing civilians on a large scale doesn't fit that narrative. So it's not surprising that they, that he would deny it. But from what the evidence that we've seen from independent media sources and multiple sources is that they have been targeting civilian structures. They have been targeting civilian buildings. They have been targeting civilians, including killing uh, large numbers of civilians. The deputy ambassador also accused Ukraine of hiding weapons in civilian buildings, seeming to indicate that that might be a reason that some civilian buildings get hit by Russia. Is there any sign that's a legitimate claim? That's factually not something that I'm aware of or even been hinted at, other than just it's the first time I heard it from his claim. You know, the, the, the laws of targeting in war have to follow a certain number of principles. One is the principle of distinction, that you can only target military objects and military objectives. You cannot target civilians or civilian objects. Um, but in addition to the principle of distinction, there's also the principle of proportionality. And the pr- principle of proportionality says that even when you are targeting a military target, you cannot cause damage to civilian structures that's in excess of the military target that you're seeking to destroy. So even if they are correct about this claim, which I have seen no evidence that it is, they still have to conduct their attacks in a way that minimizes damage to civilians. So even if they are directly targeting ammunition, which would be a legitimate target, if the target of that ammunition is going to destroy a civilian residential building and kill hundreds of residents, then the question becomes is whether that loss or damage or killing of civilian lives is excessive loss in in relation to the military advantage that's being gained. Mm. And so what you're saying is, from what you've observed of Russia's actions in Ukraine, that they are simply ignoring these, these laws around conducting war. Absolutely. They, 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 they seem to be little regard with, re, with regards to the uh, adherence to the laws of armed conflict, which are well entrenched in international law, well entrenched in, 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 in domestic military codes, and also uh, part of customary international law. So all warfare, all armies have to abide by the principle of distinction and by the principle of proportionality. And it doesn't seem at all that the Russian attacks are are in any way complying with these principles. Now, Ukrainian authorities say that Russia's major push into Ukraine's east has now begun. Can anything be done to prevent a repeat in the east of Ukraine of what we've been seeing across Ukraine during these last few weeks? I think this will be at the hands of those who are launching the attacks. It's up to them to abide by the by the principles of the laws of armed conflict. It's up to them to avoid the commission of war crimes. It's up to them to target military objectives only and not civilian structures or residential buildings or hospitals. And in addition to those things that we talked about, we also, with, with the witnesses who are fleeing these areas, we hear even more personalized and grotesque stories of rape, of the intentional killing of 
uh, civilians, of, of fathers, of children. We, we heard from one witness that they threw a smoke bomb into a basement to force the people in there to rush out. And as they rushed out, they shot and killed them. And they ended up killing a mom and two children. And many years may pass before international institutions are able to put Putin on trial. Shah Ramdana, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you very much. Former, former war crimes prosecutor Dr Shahram Dana and more of that interview on the issues of genocide and the slow-turning wheels of international justice, head to the PM webpage, search ABC PM. Well, the recent release of the last refugees detained in Melbourne's Park Hotel was a joyous moment for their supporters. A small band of volunteers has been working flat out since then, helping nearly 40 men find accommodation, get health care and adjust to their new lives in the community. But they say the Commonwealth should be doing more to help. Samantha Donovan has more from Melbourne. After nine years in immigration detention, getting used to being a free man in Melbourne isn't easy for this refugee who wants to be known as Ali. Really strange. Been like almost forgot how to be living outside as a normal person. I was almost 21 when I arrived and I would be turning 30 this year. So things are hard getting like a new start. For registered nurse Claire Gomez, it's been a busy few weeks helping refugees she's supported since they were in offshore detention. Like I could probably break down. It's just this huge amount of need. The last month has been such a roller coaster. I've never been like happier in my life. It's the day we've been waiting for for, you know, nine years to see um, these men like walk free and be able to take a walk down the street, have a meal with friends. She says the refugees who've recently been released have accommodation for three to six weeks paid for by the Commonwealth and a Medicare card. But she and her fellow volunteers are trying to provide other help. Just looking for housing, help those like there's some who are really traumatised, taking people for walks, taking people to the doctor, trying to find funding because there's no money. Today she's taken a couple of refugees to the dentist. So I found an amazing, uh, generous man who reached out and just said I'm willing to pay for two men's dental treatment and then of course there's just so much damage one of them was bashed up when he was in Manus so there's a lot of damage that's been done to the teeth and then for the other gentleman we have to make another appointment to have some teeth pulled. Professor Marie Bismarck is another refugee advocate. She successfully raised funds to pay for mobile phones for 40 men for six months. She works in public health and psychiatry and is concerned by some of the health problems the refugees are suffering. So some of them were assaulted while they were in Nauru or on Christmas Island and have poorly healed fractures or broken teeth from being assaulted. Um, Some of them have developed nicotine addictions from being provided with cigarettes While they were in detention, they were non-smokers when they arrived in Australia and they now have a nicotine addiction. So I really think that the government owes these men a duty of care and at times cigarettes were withheld as a form of punishment. So really what we see is this very lethal substance being used as a form of behaviour control. Sister Bridget Arthur is one of the coordinators of the Bridgetine Asylum Seekers Project. It's funded entirely by donations. She too says she's had an extraordinarily busy few weeks trying to find accommodation for the 40 refugees released from detention. fair bit of it we actually have to rent, but a number of people have offered either lower rent uh, places or uh, on a few occasions they've offered to provide a place. How do you feel about the fact it's organisations like yours and other volunteers having to support the refugees once they're released? 
I think it's really sad that uh, we've Australia has put itself into this position. And a lot of people say to us, uh, we're just ashamed of the fact that we're making people destitute after all that we've put them through. I mean, I... I think it is the the role of um, of people in a community to help uh, look after the most vulnerable, but we really can't do it on this scale when it's uh, not planned for. It would be really great if some of the services or all of the services that are available to ordinary Australians, uh, so that these people could get Centrelink, could get um, you know help to get jobs, etc. They can't they can't access any of those sorts of things. In a written statement, a spokesperson for the Department of Home Affairs emphasises that the men will not be settled in Australia and their visas allow them to stay in the community only while they make plans to leave the country and they're encouraged to explore their resettlement options in the United States, Canada and New Zealand. The spokesperson says the Australian Border Force strongly refutes claims that cigarettes are provided to detainees as a means of rewarding good behaviour. Samantha Donovan with that report. Well, the American far-right conspiracy website InfoWars has filed for bankruptcy. It comes after its founder, Alex Jones, was slapped with a string of defamation lawsuits stemming from false claims he made about the 2012 Sandy Hook school massacre. Jones claimed the shooting, in which 20 children and six school employees were killed, was a hoax, and he accused several families of victims of being paid actors trying to promote gun restrictions. Jones is now appealing for donations to help fund his legal action and to stay on air. Conspiracy theory experts say the bankruptcy, if it proves to be true, won't be the end of him. In fact, the litigation will only add to his luster for his fellow travellers. Emily Burke compiled this report. The veteran right-wing American conspiracy theorist Alex Jones claims the legal action he's facing is part of the grand conspiracy. I don't feel sorry for myself. I feel sorry for the country. I am, I am shocked. Powerful forces are doing everything they can and breaking all the rules, trying to silence us ahead of the next big lockdowns and the devaluation of the currency and the universal basic income and, and the real tyranny that is being set up and rolled out now. InfoWars purports to be an independent news and documentary media organisation. I've been on there 28 years. And in that time, we've changed the world together. So we are the most hardcore, most accurate, most focused group out there. But his conspiracy theory claims about the 2012 Sandy Hook school massacre have landed him in a world of legal and financial pain. One of the Sandy Hook parents, Neil Heslin, whose six-year-old son Jesse Lewis died in the shooting, spoke to CNN in 2018. My son was brutally murdered that day. Over the, the period of five years, four and a half years, there's been ongoing harassment from hoaxers, conspiracy theory people, uh, and Alex Jones. He's the fuel of the fire. It, it's just got to stop. He tries to correct a lie with a lie or cover a lie up with a lie. Last month, the Sandy Hook families rejected Jones's offer to settle their defamation lawsuit and reopened the case. Each of the plaintiffs turned down the $120,000 settlement offer, saying that it was a desperate attempt by Jones to escape a public reckoning under oath. In his latest broadcast, Alex Jones claims he's maxed out and announced a fire sale of InfoWars merchandise. He's appealed for donations to build his war chest. So this is do or die, folks. I know the world's full of thousands of shows, and but, 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 but who has exposed the new world order? We're at that critical juncture in the coming months 
where if I have the funds, I can continue on. Alex Jones is like the mothership of all conspiracies. He's extremely influential and has been dominating the conspiracy world since probably the 1990s. Dr Kaz Ross is an independent researcher of far-right conspiracy theories. This guy has promoted, developed, invented many, many, many of the conspiracies that are floating around and still shaping our world today. So this is a guy who believes that 9-11 was an attack caused by the government. This is a guy who doesn't believe that the moon landing happened at all. Without Alex Jones, people wouldn't have even come across the concept of a so-called crisis actor, someone pretending to be a victim in a massacre. Without Alex Jones, people wouldn't have come across the concept of a false flag, where something has been done by the government to another group look bad or to make themselves look good. How much financial trouble is he in? It's hard to say. Infowars, his clearing house is, is big. But after 2018, he's, he's had a few difficulties. He was banned off all the social media platforms, Facebook, Apple, Spotify, Twitter, and of course, YouTube. That was a huge one for them. Then they've had to develop their own platforms. I'd say that he has access to substantial funds. He did raise a lot of money for the January 6th Capitol riot. He has big backers and supporters. I doubt that Alex Jones is actually bankrupt. What is this going to do to his his influence? Will he will his followers be emboldened or will he go quietly into the good night? Yes, I don't think the concept of Alex Jones going quietly into the good night would ever wash. So this will just add to his to his luster. Here he is, he's fighting the good fight. We've all got to rally around him. Even if his whole enterprise crumbles around him, he will still broadcast. Dr Kaz Ross speaking with Emily Burke, and that is PM for this Tuesday. I'm Linda Mottram. Thank you for listening. Stay on RN now for The Law Report with Damien Carrick. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.